0: We've been considering creation in the first few chapters of Genesis, and I heard a story of the creation of the heavens and the earth, and God finally made man. And when God created man, Adam, God looked at Adam and said, I think I can do better the second time around, and so he made a woman. Someone to compliment man, to strengthen man, to be a helper to him. And uh, again, I heard it was—it's a mythical story, but nonetheless, I heard that Adam once approached God after he had created Eve, and he said, "God, my wife that you have given me, she's such a blessing. Why did you make her so beautiful?" God said, "I made her beautiful so that you would love her, be attracted to her." Oh Lord, that's fabulous, but Lord, she doesn't think the same way I do. I'm more logical. She's she's not logical. She's emotional. In fact, I think she's stupid. Lord, why did you make her so stupid? And God said, so that she would love you. (laughs) The truth of the matter is, is that Eve was created to compliment Adam. To be a helper, a rescuer. One to bring him to completion and fulfillment. God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper that is fitting or comparable to Adam. We discussed that chapter 3 is the pivotal point in the book of Genesis because we see that man falls from God's intention. He falls to a place where from that point on, sin is present in the human race. Every man and woman born after Adam has got original sin, a sin nature. He's born dead on arrival, spiritually. Now that's hard for some parents to believe, but it's true. That little beautiful baby that's just been born in your household has a sin nature. It's separated from God. We were born in trespasses and dead in trespasses and sins. By nature... Paul said, we were children of wrath. David said, I came forth from my mother's womb speaking lies. Thus, from here on out, there is the necessity for God to now act in redeeming fallen man. And so Jesus said, a man must be born again. Because man has fallen from God's intended ideal, God now works in bringing man back to the Father through a relationship with his son, Jesus Christ. Adam fell. Eve was deceived, but Adam disobeyed. Though he blamed the woman, in fact, he blamed God, it was the woman you gave me, she was deceived, Paul tells Timothy, in his second epistle to Timothy, but God said that Adam deliberately disobeyed. It was an act of flagrant disobedience. In chapter 3, we have the root of sin. In chapter 4 and throughout, we have the fruit of sin, what sin brought into the world. Now, people would seek to minimize sin. Is sin that bad of a thing? Is it that big of a deal? Well, yes, it is. When Adam and Eve fell, when they ate of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they didn't just get indigestion, or Tomain poisoning, what resulted was a disease that is contagious, that's passed on from generation to generation, everybody has it, from which we need to be redeemed, a sin nature. Chapter 3 shows the root, chapter 4 and throughout shows the fruit of it. Paul said to the Romans, Through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, so that... Death spread to all men, for all have sinned, Paul wrote, Romans chapter 5. Paul wrote to the Corinthians and said, As in Adam, all died. And he pointed to the necessity of having the last Adam, Jesus Christ. For as even one man brought sin into the world, by one man sin can be removed, and that's through the atoning work of Jesus Christ. Uh, It's important to remark, I think, in chapter 3 and 4, that uh, this should put to death the nonsense that every person on this earth is a child of God. They are not. You become a child of God by a spiritual birth. If you are not a Christian, you are not a child of God. Paul said, you are children of wrath even as others before you're saved. Jesus called the unregenerate children of the devil, but you are not a child of God. The scripture tells us, as many as received him, to them gave he the power, the right, the authority to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. So you're born into the kingdom. You're born as a child, born again. In one sense, you are the child of God, and all people are children of God creatively, but not redemptively. Creatively, in that we've all been created by the same one. But spiritually, we need to be born again. And that's where you become a real child of God. Well, let's go back down and look at the Messianic prophecy. In fact, the first one, verse 14, is a curse. The Lord said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go, and you're going to eat dust (laughs) all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. Now here we have the road to the cross that is established. The first messianic prophecy. Eventually, God says... "...through the seed of the woman will come someone who will crush the head of Satan. Though you will bruise his heel, which happened at the cross, he will crush your head. He will defeat your authority." Beginning in this verse, we see the start of warfare, spiritual warfare that continues throughout the ages and is continuing even now. And you have the explanation to so many things... I'm convinced that if you fail to understand this scripture, and if you fail to see the warfare behind the scenes, you will not understand the Bible at all. You will be totally confused when you get to some of the areas in the Old and New Testament. It's crucial that you understand the warfare that's taking place behind the scenes. Ever since this prediction that Satan's authority would be taken away, that his head would be crushed... Ever since this time, Satan has worked hard to prevent that from happening, to prevent the seed of the woman from even coming. And so he sought to destroy the race of the people called Jews. How has he done that? Well, we're going to see Cain kills Abel, probably because the enemy thought Abel is the promised seed, the firstborn. We'll get to that in the next chapter, actually, chapter 4. Actually, I'm sorry, Abel, the second born. But we see a warfare continuing all the way through the Bible. We have the explanation then for why the Pharaoh wanted to have all of the male children of Israel killed. We have the reason behind Haman's plot to destroy the Jews. The reason behind Herod's murder of the babies in Bethlehem. The reason Satan three times in his temptations tried to move Jesus Christ from his mission on earth. The reason why in Nazareth they tried to take him and throw him off a cliff. The reason that storm was on the Sea of Galilee that almost sunk the boat with Jesus asleep in the bottom. So much so that Jesus had two interesting words, rebuke the sea. Same word used of Jesus rebuking the enemy. Because the Messiah, the seed of the woman, was the key in predictive prophecy, the one who would come and destroy Satan's power. Remember in the book of Revelation, chapter 12, it says, Behold, I saw a great sign in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, the moon under her feet, a garland of twelve stars about her head. And she was great with child, and she cried out in labor and in pain, ready to give birth. And I saw another sign in heaven, a great red fiery dragon. With his tail he drew a third of the stars and flung them to the earth. And he stood before the woman ready to devour her child as soon as it was born. And that male child was one who would come forth and rule the world and the nations with a rod of iron. Satan to destroy the seed of the woman that would come. You'll see an interesting weaving of warfare now as we go throughout the scriptures. Of course, the ultimate attempt of the enemy was the cross. I am certain that when Jesus hung upon that cross, Satan thought, Got him! That is the promised seed, the Son of David, the one who would rule with the rod of iron. But I put him to death. Of course, Satan forgot to read the fine print in the contract. It was that that spelled his very defeat, Colossians chapter 2 tells us, having disarmed principalities and powers. He put them to public shame or made a public spectacle of them on the cross. And it was the cross that spelled his defeat. Of course, he didn't know that until three days later when Jesus rose from the dead and tore his kingdom from him. But that's something we'll get to. Now the prophecy goes on. I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception in pain. This is to the woman. You shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Now, what does that mean? What is he saying? He is not saying that woman's submission to her husband is a result of the fall. Not at all. In fact, the woman came to be a helper to the man, one who was fitting and comparable to help him reach complete fulfillment. In fact, the opposite would be true, actually. For God rebukes Adam because he was led by his wife. She was deceived, he willingly disobeyed, but notice, Adam to Adam, he said, Behold, because you listen to the voice of your wife. Now, husbands, don't underline that and take that out of context. Next time your wife asks you to do so, Well, here it says that you know, he got in trouble for listening to his wife. So, no. Let's read on. And have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Now, back in verse 16, God says, Your desire shall be for your husband, and he will rule over you. I want you to skip ahead to chapter 4. Look at verse 7. God says to Cain, If you do well, will, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door, and its desire is for you. Same exact wording in the Hebrew. But you should rule over it. In other words, because of sin, you as a woman will have the same desire to master your husband as sin has crouching at the door to master Cain, to desire to rule over him. I believe in the Hebrew construction, that is what it's saying. And here begins the battle of the sexes. From the fall... Men do not lead easily their wives. Case in point, listen to some of the weddings that go on today. In many cases, they've taken out the word submission. Do you promise to love love him and submit to him? And I'll tell you what, even in weddings that we do here, it's as if you said a four-letter word, a cuss word. When you talk about submission in a wedding, if you quote Ephesians 4, submit to your husband's, in all things as unto the Lord. You get some indignant looks from the audience. How dare you say that word submit? That's archaic. And there's quite a push for independence in all realms. Not just in marriage, a woman from a man, but man from God, man from authority, man from the law, and also a woman from the headship of man. As a result, of the fall. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. What's the answer in a marriage? The answer is Ephesians chapter 5, when we get back into line with God's principles. I know that that word frightens many women, especially because they have tyrant husbands. And they kinda cringe when we read Ephesians 5. Wives, submit unto your husband. Oh, God he's such a creep. And I'll grant you that fact. Some of your husbands are creeps. But it doesn't say submit it to your husband only if he's perfect. Because if that were true, you'd have all of you'd have an excuse. But before it speaks about the submission of a wife to her husband it says husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it that he might wash it with the cleansing of and so forth even as Jesus loves the church husbands are to love their wives so husbands before you start quoting that scripture to your wives and beating her over the head submit the Bible says and I know that most husbands have that underlined in several different versions it's memorized it's one of the first scriptures they that they know But you are to love that woman like Jesus loves you. It's a mouthful. How does he love you? Unconditionally, without reservation, for better or for worse. What if the Lord Jesus loved us so often like we love our wives? What if there were strings attached? What if because of some imperfection in our behavior, Jesus said, I'm sorry, I don't love you today as much. And he was cold-shouldering you, refusing to have fellowship with you, refusing to get close. Submission is easy for a wife when she feels secure in her husband's unconditional love for her. She knows that no matter what she does, that man's going to be there supporting her, loving her encouraging her, nourishing the relationship. Man, it's easy to submit to somebody like that. But as long as you beat each other over the head with roles, you're not going to get anywhere. It doesn't say, husbands, love your wives as long as she submits to you. Wives, submit to your husbands as long as he loves you like Christ. No, you each are responsible for your own roles in the Lord. It's not 50-50. And I hear a couple say that. As soon as you share the Scripture, now the Bible says you were to submit to your husband well let me tell you something about him if you'd love me like Christ loved the church then I would submit well if you'd submit then I'd love you <laughs> well I don't submit because you don't love me well I don't love you because you don't submit and you play ping pong back and forth what's the answer the answer is for each of you to take your individual roles and be responsible before God for your role only You can't be responsible for her submitting to you, but you can be responsible to love her like Christ loved the church. And you can win her love and you can win her affection. My husband doesn't love me. Submit unto him as you would unto the Lord, as long as it's in and of the Lord. Submit to him. Love him. Be responsible for your role and you will find a warming process begin in his cold heart where he'll start loving you, perhaps, as Christ loved the church. But even before the roles are given by the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 5, the balance is given. It says, submitting to one another in the fear of the Lord. You submit to one another. Oh, yes, the man is the head of the household, but believe me, that's no glorious job. It just means you have the responsibility if you blow it. You're responsible. When you make decisions, ask your wife's advice. She might have a better mind than you. She might have great insight. The final decision is yours, but you are also now responsible before God for those decisions as you lead your home. And one of the greatest needs in America today, is for men to become leaders of their homes. Listen, I'll be honest with you. I find more and more men to be wimps when it comes to the leadership of their homes. Now, I'm not trying to knock you guys or anything. We're all in this together. And it's all because of the fall. It's the sin nature. To be passive. To just let things go don't worry about them. And and then if something goes wrong, to blame her for it. And it's wrong. God expects you as a husband to squarely accept the role of leadership for the home. To make decisions by prayer. Asking God's counsel and wisdom. Loving your wife as Christ loved the church. Your wife then finding that submission is easy because she feels secured by your love. I believe that's the answer. Those are the roles, but you can only do it by God's strength. You can only do it by God's strength. I believe that marriage can be the closest thing to heaven on earth. If a husband loves his wife unconditionally and a wife submits into her husband unreservedly. I believe that. In fact, Paul the Apostle said that marriage on earth was meant to reflect the relationship Jesus Christ has with his church. Ephesians 5 bears that out. In other words, people should be able to look at our marriage and say, oh, that's what God intended for the church to be like. That's the kind of relationship God wants with me, one of warmth and intimacy and closeness. It's meant to be like that. But marriage can become hell on earth when husbands and wives do not pick up their God-given roles. It seems like, really, you have one of the two extremes. I see people who, as their marriages just kind of wear on and they don't pay attention to it, they don't water it, they don't nurture it. It becomes so lonely and so miserable. But it can become awesome. It can be. It takes work, it takes diligence, it takes commitment. And especially, we ought to consider the result of the fall when we consider our relationship in a marriage. Now God curses the ground for your sake, verse 17, In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. I find it interesting that upon Jesus' head, at his crucifixion, he wore a symbol of the very curse he had came to take away. He wore a crown of thorns. And the curse would be that man's work would be burdensome, when at first man's work was a blast. It was meant to bring pleasure and fulfillment. But now it's toilsome. It's wearisome. You get tired. You shall eat uh, of the herb of the field. In the sweat of your face, verse 19, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. And Adam called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. Also for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. I find that so gracious of God. Because what were Adam and Eve doing as soon as they found out that they were naked? With their own works, with their own hands, they thought, sought to clothe themselves with fig leaves. God rejected that. And to clothe them, he had an animal killed. How else do you get a skin of an animal? So to cover them in their shame was the shedding of blood in the beginning, God rejects the works of man's hands to cover himself, and God graciously extends his clothing to them. As you and I are clothed in the righteousness of the death of Jesus Christ, behold the Lamb of God to take away the sins of the world. It's seen here even in the book of Genesis. Covered only through death. And the Lord said, behold, the man has become like one of us, to know good and evil. And now lest he put out his hand and take also of the tree of life and and live forever. Therefore the Lord sent him out of the garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. And so he drove out the man and placed cherubim at the east of the garden of Eden and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way of the tree of life. Again, God was so gracious in doing this. He said, gracious? Angels? Thugs? The big ushers in front of the Garden of Eden and then a flaming sword ready to kill them? Yes, gracious. Because they had already tasted and eaten of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Unless they live forever in their sin by eating of the tree of life, God prevented them from having eternal separation in that state of sinfulness and fallenness. And so what a picture we have. A dead animal in the Garden of Eden and two cherubim. Does that sound familiar? As in the mercy seat in the tabernacle, where you have, by God's instruction, the two angels that cover the mercy seat and the shed blood upon the top of it for the atoning, to atone for the sins of the children of Israel. What a beautiful picture from the beginning. Now, Adam knew, which means had sexual relations, knew Eve, his wife. And she conceived and bore Cain and said, I have gotten a man from the Lord. I betcha that she thought, here's the promised seed. Even as the Scripture predicted right before that, that the seed of the woman would come and destroy the work of the enemy. She thought, all right, this is it. Of course she was wrong, wasn't she? The promised seed wouldn't come for at least 6,000 years, depending on your time chart of the book of Genesis. But Cain was born. Cain was the first person ever born by natural childbirth. I bet you he was spoiled. You know how it is when you have only one child in a home? I do. Get spoiled really quickly. No competition yet. And to be the firstborn of any human being, he's probably just had everything he wanted. And she bore again, this time his brother Abel. Abel was a keeper of the sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. And in the process of time... It came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. The Hebrew language would state it like this. At the end of prescribed days, Cain brought as an offering to a prescribed place this unto the Lord. In other words, there was some type of worship system inaugurated. There was some kind of a a time that was Given to Cain and Abel, where they were going to worship the Lord. They were going to prepare something and bring it. And so Cain brought an offering of fruit. Also, Abel brought of the firstlings of his flock and of their fat. And the Lord respected Abel and his offering. And again, a better translation would be Abel brought the firstlings of his flock, even the fattest ones. In other words, the choicest, the best. He offered to God the very best, not leftovers. Now, there's a lesson in our worship to God. God wants the best of our worship. By that, I don't mean that God is interested materially in the best. I don't believe that you have to make a place of worship so adorned as to take away, away from God and exalt the work of man. But God wants the best from our worship. He wants us to worship him in spirit and in truth. He doesn't want leftovers. The worship system that God started with the children of Israel, they were to bring the first fruits, the first animal into the Lord and consecrate it. The firstborn was consecrated to God. He wants the first, the best, the early, given unto God, not the leftovers. And it's a funny philosophy that some people have about their worship to God. If you see the Lord as a spoke in the wheel of your life, you will not give God the best. As long as you picture yourself as the hub and everything revolves around you, including God, whose primary goal is to bring you happiness, if you see God that way, you'll never give God the best because you are way out of line in your view of God and yourself. You've made yourself the God and God your servant. God is to be the hub And you and everything you are revolves around Him and His will for your life. Then you'll give God the best, not the leftovers. It's funny how people view their possessions. I've been to churches and I've gone from classroom to classroom and usually I see, especially some of the denominational churches, a piano in each classroom. And I usually ask, hey, that's a beautiful piano, but it sure is old. Where'd you get it? It's always donated. Usually the thing's out of tune, missing strings, the harp is warped. And the philosophy of people is often this. I have used this piano. It's been in my family. And now that it's old and beat up and I can't use it anymore, let's give it to God. We've thrashed it. And so, hey, let's give it to the church. It's all beat up now. Instead of, let's give the best unto the Lord for his service and for his people. It's like, no, me first. (laughs) And then whatever's left, I'll give it to God. In verse 5, he did not respect Cain and his offering. And Cain was very angry and his countenance fell. In other words, man, he just had a sour face. He was bummed out to the max. Loose translation. And the Lord said to Cain, Why are you bummed out to the max? Again, loose translation. Why are you angry? Why is your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, then sin lies at the door. And its desire is for you that you should rule over it. Again, it would be best translated, Sin is crouching like a lion at the door, ready to, ready to master you. But you should rule over it. Now Cain talked with Abel, his brother, and it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose against Abel, his brother, and killed him. Why is it that God respected one offering and not the other? Why didn't he respect Cain's? And some people say, well, it's because he didn't offer an animal sacrifice. It could be. It could be that the precedent had been set. The covering was not to be the fruit of your own hands, what you could construct, but it should be by the death of a substitute, a vicarious atoning sacrifice. That's possible. But it says in the book of Hebrews, the real reason. It says, By faith, Abel offered a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, whereby he demonstrated that he was righteous. It was done by faith. He was placing his trust in the Lord. Upon some revelation of God, rather than in his own works. Cain, on the other hand, his true colors are shown in verse 5. He became angry. What I find interesting is this. Worship was taken seriously by these two fellows. There was a prescribed time and a prescribed method. And they just didn't say, here's my offering, plop it down and leave. It had to be examined before God. And as it was being examined, God took in consideration not just the offering, but the heart and the motive of the one giving the sacrifice. And so he says, Cain, how come you're bummed out, man? If you lived right, I'd accept your offering. But if not, it's because sin is waiting to master you. You've got sin in your life. Here you've got this sacrifice, but you're not living a life of faith. You're not walking by faith. You've got sin." But if you were living right, I'd accept your offering. God never separates the offering from the one bringing the offering. He does, doesn't just look at the sacrifice and go, Wow, I love that sacrifice. I love that offering. Oh, that's a beautiful lamb. Beautiful bouquet of flowers. He looks at the heart behind him. He never separates the offering from the one giving the offering. And so you can read Isaiah chapter 1. Where the children of Israel were engaged in worship, coming to the temple offering their sacrifices, lifting their hands and worship unto the Lord, standing in His presence. And God says, Quit bringing these sacrifices. When you lift your hands, I won't even listen to your prayers. I'm sick of them. Because the actions of their life the rest of the week did not match up with their profession when they came to worship. And God looks over our offering. Listen. God doesn't care how flamboyant you are in your worship. God doesn't get off when you raise your hands. God doesn't say, oh, he's more spiritual than she is because, oh, he stands in worship. In fact, some people, I think, stand in worship to draw attention to themselves because people are distracted from the Lord by looking at that person. God doesn't get off on a harmony that's beautiful or music that's just tweaked just right. You know what God gets off on is the attitude of the heart. That's why I says, sing a joyful song unto the Lord. Your heart's to be in it. It's to be something from the inside. The outside is consequential. Yes, I think you ought to do your best, and you ought to sing your best and play your best. It's for the Lord. But what really counts is what's going on inside the heart. That's what God looks at. God looked at Cain and saw that there was a discrepancy. So Cain arose, verse 8, and killed his brother. The first murder committed. And the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel, your brother? Now, did God need information? <laughs> i looking for your brother. Have you seen him? No, it wasn't like that at all. He was drawing out a confession. And he said, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? Now, again, his heart is being shown. He's not in submission to the Lord. He's talking back to God. And he said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. So now you are cursed from the earth which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you till the ground, it shall no longer yield its strength to you. A fugitive and a vagabond, you shall be on the earth. And Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Now my question would be, Cain, if your punishment is greater than you can bear, then why don't you repent? He was more interested in the consequences personally than the fact that he has offended his creator, his Lord, the one who loved him. God graciously tried to call him back to repentance, saying, hey, how come you're angry, man? Just live right. But he spurned God's approach. And so God placed judgment upon him, banished him, you're going to be a vagabond. All the days of your life. oh, it's too much, I can't bear it. Surely you have driven me out this day from the face of the ground, and I shall be hidden from your face. I shall be a fugitive and a vagabond on the earth, and it will happen that anyone who finds me will kill me. Poor baby. Again, at this point, listen just turn back to God. Some of you tonight are far from God. You've turned and gone your own way, you're living your own life, you're miserable. And yet you blame God. How could God allow this? (laughs) Why did you allow it? You're suffering the consequences of rebellion. Turn to him. If it's more than you can bear, bring it over to him. Jesus said, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. If you're carrying a heavy burden, it's because you're carrying something he never intended you to carry. Only he's got shoulders that strong. So you give your burden over to the Lord, and you come to him and let him carry it for you. Now, verse fifteen. I am. I marvel at God's grace. The Lord said to him, "Therefore, whoever kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold." Even though that he disobeyed God, it says the Lord set a mark on Cain, lest anyone finding him should kill him. Now, what this mark is, we don't exactly know. The Hebrew word for mark is sign or pledge. It could be that it was a physical mark some kind of a blemish that people would say, Oh, there's Cain. You can see him a mile away. Or it could be that it was just God's pledge, God's promise to protect him and to keep him safe. And then in verse 16, we begin with the, a little bit of the genealogy of Cain. Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and dwelt in the land of Nod on the east of Eden. Now I know several Christians that during church dwell in the land of Nod. And they ought to just be home enjoying the whole deal instead of just nodding out here and there. It's interesting to compare these two brothers, Cain and Abel. In many ways, they were very similar, and in other ways, they were very different. They had the same heredity, the same background, the same opportunity, the same environment. And yet their action was so different, wasn't it? I think here's a good case in point against people who say, you are what you are because of your environment. Hey, we understand the way you are. It's because your father or your mother did this to you when you were young. And some of that may be true. A person does act and react according to a pattern that has been set, a behavioral pattern of that person, especially in the early years, the security or the insecurity felt by mom and dad because of mom and dad. And yet, that should never be an excuse. And some people make it an excuse today. Well, that's just the way I am. It's because my dad or my mom. Listen, they couldn't say that. Why did Abel get killed by Cain? Was it because Cain had an abusive grandfather? He didn't even have a grandfather. They come from the same background, but sin crouches at the door desiring to master every human being. And all of us have a sin nature. Sin entered the world, and death by sin. And until Jesus Christ comes back, there will be no peace on earth. There will be no peace in the Middle East. I'm not a pessimist completely saying you should forget the United Nations and the peace talks. No, the Bible says as much as lies in you, be at peace with all men. But we won't have lasting peace that we're really yearning for until Jesus comes back and redeems the entire earth itself. When he buys it back as we see in Revelation chapters 4 and 5 taking the title deed back and it will come through purging in the tribulation period. But back to the story. Um, Oh yeah. uh, Comparing between Cain and Abel. One shows a man given over to the things of the flesh having the mind of the flesh that Paul speaks about. And one has the mind of the Spirit. The Bible says, Whoever lives according to the flesh sets his mind on the things of the flesh. And whoever lives according to the Spirit sets his mind on the things of the Spirit. For the carnal mind is enmity against God. It's not subject to the law of God. Neither indeed can be. Cain shows a man hiding behind carnal religion thinking that he can just offer up any kind of a ceremony, bring something as a sacrifice to the Lord, and God would accept it when his life was not matching his sacrifice, and God rejected him. Abel, on the other hand, was a man who lived by faith and offered up a sacrifice of faith. One lived according to the flesh, one lived according to the Spirit. Cain leaves the presence of God. We read, I think, in verse 16. He didn't want to retain God in his knowledge, as Paul wrote to the Romans in chapter 1 of Romans. Neither were they thankful, but they became vain in their imagination and their foolish heart was darkened. It happened with Cain. Abel on the other hand desired to live by the Spirit in the presence of God. Cain lives in the land of Nod. Interesting the word Nod is wandering. He's a meanderer. He has no purpose, no walk, no direction. And then he builds a city in verse 17 and calls it after the name of his son Enoch to perpetuate the human family. As a, it's all he's got, man. He doesn't have a relationship with God, so he does everything he can to bring glory and honor to man. Every time I visit a city, I, I visit New York City frequently, and as you cross the George Washington Bridge and you're looking into Manhattan, it's, it's awesome, and it's like, wow. It's such, a, it's such a view to check out. And I was with a friend, we were going across the bridge, and I thought, that has got to be one of the greatest trophies to the ability of man that I have ever seen. Now, when I go to the woods, like I did last Wednesday evening, and woke up Thursday morning up in the Santa Fe Mountains, and the pine trees were there, and the night before, the constellations were shining, I didn't think of the work of man. I thought of the glory and the work of God. And what a contrast! Cities so often speak of the ability of man, sometimes and often in rebellion against God. It's interesting there's such uh, a push to move back to the cities more than ever before in history since the Roman times. And uh, it seems as, um, uh, as time goes on, there's that push as there was even in the days of Cain to build a city and we have the beginning of cities from this point on. And so he named it after his son, Enoch. To Enoch was born Irad, and to Irad, Mehujael. And Mehujael begot Methuselah, and Methuselah begot Lamech. Lamech took for himself two wives. Uh-oh. Now we've got problems. Every now and then a person will come up to me trying to prove a discrepancy in the Bible. And they often point to Polygamy. David had many wives. Many of the patriarchs had many wives. And they try to say, look, you know, the Bible says one husband and one wife, and yet in the Old Testament they didn't live that way. Yeah, but that was not God's order from the beginning. It would be one man and one woman, as seen in the first part of the book of Genesis. Polygamy was never sanctioned by God. Why is it in the Bible? Because it's the truth. People did it. And that's the refreshing thing about the Bible it tells you the truth about its heroes. It doesn't try to embellish the story like a modern biographer would try to do, hiding all the bad stuff. Man, it exposes everyone, good and bad. They got two wise, and hey, he had trouble, believe me. Well, let's go on. We'll see. The name of one was Ada. The name of the second was Zila. And Ada bore Jabel. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. So uh, the patron father of all ranchers was this man, Jabel, and the outdoorsman. He had tents. And his brother's name was Jubal. So he had Jabel and Jubal. He was the father of the musicians, those who play the harp and the flute. Now you can kind of get in your mind's eye a picture of the early civilization, as Cain's line begins to develop, and there's Jabel, he comes up with this great idea of taking skins and the hair of goats and makes these nifty shelters and tents. And they go, wow, this guy's brilliant. And working with livestock and using them for the common good of man. And people were working all day long and sweating, and they'd come in after a hard day's work, and there would be Jubal sitting around playing on an instrument, soothing them, and they saw how effective music was in soothing the mind and the heart. As for Zillah, she also bore Tubal-Cain, an instructor of every craftsman in bronze and iron. And the sister of Tubal-Cain was Nema, or actually it would be Naamah. And Lamech said unto his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. So he's going to really whip them into submission here. Oh, wives of Lamech, listen to my speech. And they're probably going, oh, brother, here it goes again. Big bag of wind. For I have killed a man for wounding me, even a young man for hurting me. So he's bragging about his own rebellion and sin. If Cain shall be avenged sevenfold, then Lamech seventy-sevenfold. See, that's why you need chapter 3 to explain chapter 4, because you see this rapid buildup of evil, evil. The succession of sin. Where did it come from? It came from the fall. And now man is born with a sin nature from that point on. And Adam knew his wife again. And she bore a son and named him Seth. For God, is, the word Seth means appointed. For God has appointed another seed for me instead of Abel, whom Cain killed. And as for Seth, to him also a son was born and he named him Enosh. Then men began to call on the name of the Lord." Just when Satan thought he'd gotten rid of the seed by having Cain kill Abel, God raises up another line, Seth. And God will carry out his plan and his program through the godly line of Seth. And it's interesting, then men began to call on the name of the Lord after a period of rebellion. Now we get to chapter 5 which is basically a family tree, a genealogy. This is the book of the genealogy of Adam. It's the family of Adam. It's not the Adamses or the Adam's family. It's the family of Adam, the one man and all that came from him. Now Cain's line was given to us in the previous chapter. It's put aside. And now the line of Adam through Seth is developed. You will find this a common pattern through the book of Genesis. The Bible doesn't cover every lineage of every person. It'd be impossible. It is more interesting in showing you the preservation of the godly line that leads to Jesus Christ. And so, as it serves its purpose, the genealogy of some is given, dropped off, and the godly line is given. And now we have the line of Seth. In the day that God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. He created them male and female and blessed them and called them mankind in the day that they were created. I feel it's important to reiterate something that the Bible says that you'll find coming up. God created them male and female to come together, to fill the earth, and to find enjoyment and fulfillment. He did not create them male and male. He did not create them female and female, but male and female. He made Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve. Now, with all due respect, though I find it hard to do that, but with all due respect, we live in a day and age when in the state of California, homosexuality is taught, prescribed in the schools, pushed. And the Gay Liberation Week is coming up in Southern California, and it will be taught and pushed as a perfectly normal, healthy, even biblical lifestyle to some. There are churches whose ministers are gay and lesbian. And they walk around saying, praise the Lord, God just made me this way. And I must fulfill that inclination that God has put within me, and it's perfectly normal and healthy. And they try to use the Scripture, but folks, you've got to rip a lot of it out and do a lot of Scripture twisting, the things that they accuse us of doing, to come up with that kind of sordid interpretation. Now, does that mean God hates the homosexual? On the contrary, God loves the homosexual with all of his heart. Does God condone the sin? No. But does God love the sinner? Yes. Just like God doesn't like adultery, but he loves the adulterer and seeks to woo and win that person. God can forgive any sin, this sin included. God would love to do it. But you must be willing to turn from it. A result of man falling from God, the book of Romans says, is that man goes so far that he comes to a point where he doesn't want to retain in his mind any longer the knowledge of God. And at that point, the Bible says God gives them over to a reprobate mind that they would do things in their bodies that are contrary to the way God made their bodies. Men with men, women with women, debasing themselves. God made them male and female, and God blessed them. And he called them mankind in that day. This is interesting, verse 3. Adam lived 130 years, and then he had a son, another son. I mean, he had sons before that, but he lived 130 years. Question, how old was Adam the day he was created? Well, he was a day old. But obviously, Adam had age-dating factors built into his body, didn't he? the ability to communicate, to walk, to procreate with Eve, though he was days, weeks old. He could have had the body of a 14-year-old or a 30-year-old. We don't know. 40, we don't know. But he had some age factor, which, if you translate that into some of what you find around the earth in the strata layers as you examine the earth, people say, oh, it's billions of years old. I personally believe in a young earth Within the thousands of, of uh, years range, and that the flood accounts for some of the phenomena that we find around, but wouldn't be odd if God put age dating factors within the earth. So that somebody looking go billions of years old, just like you look at Adam go look, he's thirty years old. No, he's not. He's a day. So it could be. Don't know, but it could be. So here he's one hundred and thirty years old, and he has a son in his own likeness, after his image, and he named him Seth. Oh, you know, I forgot. Somebody asks me this every now and then. In fact, a lot of unbelievers will ask this. Where did Cain get his wife? As if that's the big question that's going to stump all of us Christians we are going to throw our Bibles out now because, Ooh, you got me now. Where did Cain get his wife? (laughs) I don't know where Cain got his wife, and I don't care where Cain got his wife, frankly. But think about it. When men live to be 900 years old, And it says here that uh, Adam lived 130 years old, begot a son in his own likeness after his own image named Seth. He was just starting out. If he lived 900 years old, he could have Cain, Abel, Seth, and hundreds of others. So that maybe Cain, you know, got married when he was a couple hundred years old. By that time, there were several people. And by necessity, yes, they were related and they had to marry in the bloodline, because the bloodline was still fresh and unpolluted, as the strain of man was still fresh after the creation. And it wouldn't cause the same kind of problems that you'd have now as if first cousins would marry, and sometimes there's a pollution if you marry within the bloodline. So by necessity, yes. You know, some people say, oh, the Bible condemns incest, and yet how did Cain get his wife? Oh, give me a break. That's such a lame-brained excuse uh, to bring up. It's like, duh. Uh, Figure it out. Uh, They didn't have the same problem. The creation was so pure, and at that time it wasn't wrong. And it wasn't necessarily as close of a relation as you think with the years that elapsed and the people able to procreate and have many people. After he begot Seth, the days of Adam were 800 years. (laughs) He begot sons and daughters. So all the days of Adam that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. He died. Now, chapter 5 is going to sound like walking through a graveyard and looking at all the gravestones of the Adams family here. Adam was born, he died. Seth was born, he died. This guy was born, and he died. And we'll get that way all the way through till we get to Enoch, who did not die. We have an interesting, interesting study. So Seth lived 105 years. He begot Enosh. Enosh, Seth, lived 807 years, begot sons and daughters. Uh, And it's basically a genealogy. Let's just skip over some of the genealogy And um, if some of you feel cheated that we're skipping the genealogy, don't. You can go home tonight and read it on your own. (laughs) Verse 20, all the days of Jared were 962 years and he died. If you're wondering, now wait a minute, were these literal years? Are you trying to tell me that they lived that long? Yes, I believe they were literal 360. According to that, um, the lunar year, 360 days... And they were literal years. And we explained how that could happen last week when we talked about the shroud that was around the earth. And actually, that's scientifically shown, and in great, in, in some of the best uh, creationists, Dr. Henry Morris, Dr. Gish, and others, have written the Genesis flood, which describes how the shroud was taken away and give you some interesting data in that. Verse 21 Enoch lived 65 years and begotten Methuselah. After he begot Methuselah, Enoch walked with God for 300 years. What a time to develop a relationship with God. How long have you known the Lord? 300 years. (laughs) That's awesome. You know, when I meet a saint of God that's an elderly person and he's walked with the Lord 60, 65, 70 years, I think, wow, the depth, the richness of character and relationship. But imagine walking for 300 years with the Lord. Now, you're ready for heaven at that time. (laughs) What interests me is that Enoch started walking with God after Methuselah was born. You know, there's nothing like a child to enter a family and change the heart of a parent. happens quite frequently. A lot of times parents, you know, they're into the yuppie syndrome and making the bucks and and they don't even think about God until that child is born. All of a sudden, well, we have a child. We better send that child to Sunday school. This child needs values, religious training, godly upbringing. We've got to get him to church. And then the wife says, Yeah, but honey, you know, if we send him to church and we stay at home, we're hypocrites. Okay, well, we'll go to church too. And then they'll end up coming because their kid needs to be in Sunday school, and they'll end up giving their life to Jesus Christ, all because a child was born. They can start to walk with God. And you know, I have found that just having my son has taught me so many lessons about the Lord. It's drawn me closer in my relationship to the Lord because I have an only begotten son. And there's so many parallels between a human father and a human son, and a heavenly father and us. It's beautiful, the lessons God shows you. And it draws my heart closer to the Lord. So much so that I'd like to have a few more get closer to God. So all the days of Enoch were 365 years, and Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. That's wild. What does that mean? Well Hebrews 11 has the explanation. It says, by faith Enoch walked with God, and he was translated so that he did not see death. He didn't die. He walked with God, and God translated him, and some people see in this like the rapture. He was... To to translate... Well, look at it in a language. When you translate, you take one word from one language, place it into another language forum and structure, trying to retain the integrity of meaning. That's a translation. He was translated from this earth... He didn't see death, and God took him. There's only two men in the Bible that have never died, Enoch and Elijah. He was caught up into heaven, and he has an unfulfilled ministry. And Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Now, some people say that because of this, in the book of Revelation, chapter uh, 11, the two witnesses that come upon the earth in the last days are Enoch and Elijah. Others say it's Moses and Elijah because some of the signs... And uh, that's int- we'll get to that uh, when we get to the death of Moses. But uh, Enoch walked with God for 300 years. And um, he was not, for God took him. He was translated. The best explanation I heard of this was a little girl who tried to tell this story. See, she came home from Sunday school. And her mommy said, well, honey, what did you learn today in church? Said, oh, I learned about Enoch. Really? Tell me about Enoch. Well, mommy, Enoch walked with God. And God took him. Well, honey, do you know what that means? Yes, mommy. You see, every day God would come over to Enoch's house and he would call him and say, Enoch, let's go for a walk. So Enoch would run outside and say, great, i got nothing to do. Let's take a walk. And so Enoch and God would take a walk. They'd walk and they'd walk until the afternoon and the sun was setting and Enoch said, God, i got to get home. i got to split. So he went back home. God would show up the next day, Enoch, let's take a walk. And so Enoch would go out there and take a walk with God throughout the day and come back home. And he got to enjoy it so much that every morning he would go out on his front porch and eventually out at the gate and wait for God to come so that they could take their walk together. Then finally, Mommy, one day, God came over to Enoch's house and said, Enoch, let's take a long walk. I've got a lot of things to tell you. And so they walked all day, Mommy, into the afternoon, and it was getting late, and Enoch said, Lord, we've walked so long and it's getting late and we've gone so far. i got to start heading back home. And God said, Enoch, listen. At this point, we're a lot closer to my home than we are to your home. Why don't you just come over? And Enoch's been with God ever since, Mommy. That's what happened. God just took him home. What's interesting is Methuselah in conjunction with Enoch. For we read that Enoch had Methuselah as a child... And the word Methuselah means, when he is dead, it shall be sent. That's what a literal Hebrew translation means. When he is dead, it shall be sent. He lived 969 years. If you match the chronology of Genesis, you would see that the very year Methuselah died, the flood came. When he is dead, it shall be sent. What shall be sent? Judgment upon the earth. Methuselah, then, is a type of grace. Grace an extended period of time, the longest person that ever lived as God was extending his grace to that world, fallen and rebellious. The flood, of course, is judgment, a type of tribulation. Some people see the ark that we get to in chapter 6 as a type of rapture. I don't see that at all. I see that as a type of preservation of the nation of Israel during the time of judgment and Enoch as a type of the church being translated or raptured for that time. He begot Lamech, verse 26. Methuselah lived 782 years and begot sons and daughters. So all the days of Methuselah were 969 years. Wow, I'm way over time. I didn't even see it. I could have gone another hour. And he died. Lamech lived 182 years and begot a son. He called his name Noah, a right Noah, saying, This one will comfort us concerning our work and the toil of our hands because of the ground which the Lord has cursed. After he begot Noah, Lamech lived 595 years and begot sons and daughters. So all the days of Lamech were 777 years, and he kicked the bucket. And Noah was 500 years old, and Noah begot Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Remember those names. They come to be very important when we get to the table of nations in chapter 10. Now next week, I wanted to finish chapter 6 this week, but next week when we get to the flood and the ark, we're going to speak practically as well as technically. I happen to have a scale model of the ark that somebody graciously made for me, a scale down, of course, but according to what the ark would look like, and I'll, uh, I'll bring it and let you see it as we compare the time chart and the ark, speak about the flood. Is it possible? Are there evidences? Is there fossil evidence, paleontological evidence? And, of course, I think that there's overwhelming evidence of a universal flood. We'll bring that out next week. Um, Let's pray. Father, you are so gracious. Even as you waited a long period of time until the wickedness upon the earth was so great and the thoughts of man's heart was only evil continually. During that time, Lord, men were calling upon your name. Lord, I pray for us, your body. For we are to be like Noah, very, very different from the society that is around us, a society that is very much like that of Noah. He said, As it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be in the coming of the Son of Man. And Father, I pray that we can be different, set apart like Noah, going against the flow and being preserved in the midst of judgment. I pray, Father, for every young man and woman in this auditorium, every single person, every married person. We live in a society that is giving us messages to compromise sexually, morally, as it was in the days of Noah. Enable us, Lord, by the power of the Spirit to be different and set apart, pure, not being conformed to this world, but transformed by the renewing of our minds. And so, Father, I want to thank you for how you've renewed our minds tonight. Lord, I pray for the husbands and wives that are represented here in this building tonight, the marriages, that we would recognize that as a result of the fall, a curse is not only upon the ground, but upon relationships. There is a battle going on. But I pray that the Christian men that we would be able to love our wives unconditionally, sacrificially, giving our wives security so that there would be that submission as unto Jesus Christ, the head of the church. Lord, as your church, we submit to you and we pray that you would continue your work in our lives, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Good in Jesus' name. Amen. Good in Jesus' name. Good in Jesus' name. Amen. Good in Jesus' name. Amen. Good in Jesus' name. Amen. Good in Jesus' name.